Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Father, as we contemplate this call from our Lord Jesus Christ to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him, pray, Lord, that you might give us the strength to hear it and to do it. Open our ears to your word, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I feel like I should apologize to David Geyer for what I'm about to do, but uh, I've been at symphony concerts where I felt like you preached a little, so forgive me if in this preaching context I conduct a little bit. Um, There's a piece of music that all of you know, whether you realize it or not. All of us know the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Uh, I'm going to do the first part, and I want you to just answer back with whatever comes to you, and we'll see... If I'm right. Okay, you ready? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that was actually better than I was expecting. Um, that's great. I see what you like about this. There's something cool about it. Um, but let's switch gears. Conducting is not my thing. Literature is my thing. There's an opening line to a famous novel that all of you know, whether you're literary people or not. It's, it's a Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. We're going to do the same thing. I'm going to start, and then you just answer back with whatever feels right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Exactly right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Have you ever thought about those words and what they mean? I've thought about that line before and, and what makes it great, because it's not fancy. I mean, the words themselves are simple. I think it's the idea that's complex, that sometimes you might be having the best of times, but the person standing right next to you could be having the worst of times. But that's the way that life is. We're not all happy at the same time or sad at the same time. Sometimes I'm happy, but you're sad. But I think that line of Dickens actually says something a little bit more than that. It's not that sometimes I'm happy and you're sad, 
when he writes it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, paradoxically, he means for the same people at the same time. That for the same people at the same time, it was both the best of times and the worst of times. So not I'm happy and you're sad, but I'm happy and I'm sad at the same time. Recently at Grace, there's this thing that we've been saying a lot. We've been talking about how good things are going. Things are going so well at our church. We've installed a new pastor, Pastor Dan. We're in the process of moving to a new, larger space to worship in. We're in the process of calling, training, and installing new officers to lead our church into the future. And at the very same time, with all of those good things happening, we are also struggling, and we are also suffering. We are mourning the loss of loved ones, grieving. We are experiencing health struggles, medical scares. Honestly, to to call them that is, is an understatement. We are dealing with people we love who are in crisis. Lori and I this week were talking, and, and she told me that she'd been trying to come up with a list of everything that's falling apart. And the problem was, you had to stop because you kept remembering other things. Oh, right, this too, this too. At the same time that everything is going so well. Side by side, these two realities. What that means is, if you keep hearing people saying about how good things are going but you look at yourself and you say, things are not going good for me, you might be tempted to think that you're on your own, that you're alone, that you're somehow an outlier in this church. But believe me, you're not. For all of us, this is the best of times and the worst of times all at once. You may also be tempted to think that because these times are trying for you, while you're hearing that things are going so well, that something must be wrong, that you must be doing something Wrong. Otherwise, everything would be going well for you too. But believe me, that's not true either. We know that's not true because of the words that Jesus just spoke. Because of the words we just heard Jesus say. He explained what it is we've been called to and what it is we should expect. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And with apologies to Dickens, we might say it was the best of calls It was the worst of calls. Jesus did not mince words in what He said here. There's no ambiguity in what He says. The fact that Jesus is so clear about the kind of life that we've been called to, and yet we find it hard to reconcile ourselves to that reality, just shows how deep in denial we really are. So let's talk about our denial for just a minute. Let's talk about our denial that makes it so hard for us to hear this call. Because our denial is also Peter's denial when you think about it. Right? Now, officially, Peter's denial won't come until later in Matthew 26. But right here in Matthew 16, you can see that Peter is already in denial. Like, he's not claiming that he doesn't know Jesus. That'll come later. But he is convinced that he knows better than Jesus. Enough that he can take Jesus aside and correct him and rebuke him and say, far be it from you. This isn't going to happen 
to you. Why? Where does this come from? When I think about the root of Peter's denial and also the danger of his denial, the root of his denial is, Jesus says, in the wrong mindset. In other words, Peter is setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And that's the fundamental error that he's guilty of here. Jesus gives an antidote. The, the, the way to fix this essentially is to have the, the right kind of mindset or the right kind of denial, let's say. That's self-denial. Deny yourself, then take up your cross and follow me. In order to have your mind set on the things of God, you must deny yourself. But Peter's in denial, and that denial has a danger. The danger of that denial is that it leaves you exposed in times of trial. If you keep telling yourself, far be it from me, this isn't supposed to happen, this isn't going to happen, then when it does happen, you're taken by surprise, you're unprepared. It's the number one trigger for the crisis of faith, suffering. Faithful people suffer, and then suddenly all bets are off. Suddenly, we're questioning everything because we're deep in denial. Living in denial eventually leads to actual denial of Christ. It does in Peter's case. All too often it does in ours as well. We don't want to live in denial, but you can see the benefits because sometimes it's better to live in denial than it is to face the hard truth, the harsh reality. You might tell yourself, it's better to to live and to think, I'll never be called upon to, to suffer. I'll never be called upon to endure hardship. Better to live that fantasy than to wake up to a terrible reality of suffering. But here, Jesus doesn't just say, take up your cross and follow me. He also gives us some things to hold on to. Two things, in fact. So that we can stop being in denial and face reality, but at the same time, do it without losing hope. I say that we're in denial in the same way that Peter is in denial, but there is a difference between our situations. Peter, when he hears Jesus' words, he says, far be it from you. That's an English idiom that's translating a Greek idiom that means something like uh, mercy upon you or, or, or God have mercy on you or preserve you from this fate. But Peter says, far be it from you, but that far be it from you is really more like a far be it from me. Right? If suffering and death is not far from the Christ, the Son of the living God, then it can't be far from his disciples either. And so in wishing it away from Jesus, Peter does a very human thing. He he wishes it away from himself as well. Now he may be in denial, but at least he recognizes one truth that the student is called to follow in the steps of the teacher. When Jesus says, this is my path, Peter reacts the way that he does because he understands that Jesus is saying, this is your path too. And that is not the path that Peter wants to travel He knows that if the teacher is on the water and the teacher says, come, then the student comes and walks on water. But if the teacher is in the grave and the teacher says, come, then that means follow me to the grave. And that's the reality that Peter cannot 
reconcile himself to. Our denial is different than that because we're on the other side of the cross. Right on the other side of the cross, we can't deny the suffering of Christ. We know that Jesus is going to suffer and is going to die. What we deny is our call to follow in his footsteps. We deny that the student is called to follow the path of the teacher. We tell ourselves that Jesus suffered and died so that we don't have to. We're approaching Memorial Day, and it's common at Memorial Day to be encouraged to thank those who have served and sacrificed on our behalf. And if you think about the logic of that gratitude, it's something like this. Thank you for your sacrifice, which you made so that we don't have to. You went through that hardship so that we can live in security and in comfort. And we take that same mindset and we thank Jesus for His sacrifice too. Thank you for your service, Jesus. You sacrificed so that we don't have to. As if what Jesus did was climb this impossible mountaintop. But once He was there, after He'd done His work, He looked around and realized there was like a path at the back that wasn't really that steep. And He says, hey guys, don't come up the way I did. You take the easy path. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The path that Jesus has called you to isn't the path around suffering and death. It's the path through suffering and death to everlasting life. And there is no other path to everlasting life than that. Calvin writes these words in his little book on the Christian life. He says, All whom the Lord has chosen and received into the society of his saints ought to prepare themselves for a life that is hard, difficult, laborious, and full of countless griefs. For the apostle teaches that it is the destiny of all God's children to be conformed to him. And it is a real comfort to us when we endure many miseries, which are called adversities and calamities, that we partake of the sufferings of Christ in order that we may pass through our different tribulations as he escaped from an abyss of all evils to the glory of heaven. So the comfort of the gospel is not that we will not suffer and not die. The comfort is that we will pass through these things to be with Christ on the other side. That realization that led St. John of the Cross to write that whoever does not seek the cross of Christ does not seek the glory of Christ. In Jesus' case, the path to resurrection took Him through the cross. And for us, the path to resurrection leads the same way. Now, sometimes we tell ourselves, it's the journey that matters, not the destination. But in this case, that's not true. If you avoid the path, you do not reach the destination. If you avoid the path to the cross, which Jesus walked, you do not pass through the grave into everlasting life in the presence of Christ. In other words, 
as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to live a cross-shaped life. You, as a believer, have been called to a cross-shaped life. Jesus summarizes it. You might think this is the, the best summary from the lips of Jesus himself of what the Christian life consists of. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you think about the literal implication of taking up your cross, obviously the cross itself as an instrument of execution is fabulously cruel. But the path to the cross is a path of cruelty as well. The person who's being executed is expected to carry the cross upon which he will be hung with him to the path, to the place where he will die. It is a perverse humiliation to be asked to carry your own cross. It takes the idea of turning the other cheek to a whole new level. What's demanded of Jesus at the cross is extraordinary to contemplate. It's horrific to contemplate. And yet Jesus says to us, go and do likewise. Take up your cross too. If you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, then you must set your mind on the things of God, which you can only do through self-denial and through cross-bearing. The thing that blinds us, the thing that creates this sense of denial is self. So self-denial is what opens our eyes. Following C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller wrote about this in a little book of his on the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He wrote, Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. And to him, that is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. We live in a self-obsessed age where we're all told that the whole point of our life is to discover and to express and to fully live out ourself, who we have made ourselves to be. We long for a freedom that we cannot name because our mission in life, or so we're told, is the thing that puts us in this bondage. The freedom we long for begins, ironically, with self-denial. I quoted from Calvin's little book on the Christian life. If you read that book, which I encourage you to do, we give it to all members of the church when they join, you'll find that for Calvin, self-denial and cross-bearing aren't synonyms. They're sort of like steps. Like self-denial is a beginning, but cross-bearing is, is more than that. It demands more from us. First, you focus on God rather than self. And having denied yourself, then you use that new mindset to bear your cross, to carry the suffering that you've been called to. And as you read his words in their simplicity and you reflect on Christ's words here, they're hard words. In the face of pain and and suffering, it's easy to be overwhelmed. 
I think about my pain, my suffering. I feel like it's destroying me, right? Our pain, our suffering, it's, it's an instrument of execution. And Jesus says to carry it, not to run from it, not to avoid it if you can, not to drop it if you can't avoid it, but instead to carry it. Not because the pain is good, but because faithfulness on that path is the path that leads to Him. He gives us, in the gift of the Spirit, the strength to travel the same path that He traveled so that we can arrive at the same destination where He arrived. And so, the call of Christ to believers is not the call to the happy life. It is not the call to the life of blessedness and fulfillment now. It is not the call to have whatever you want whenever you want it. Instead, it is a call to self-denial, a call to self-sacrifice. And when you hear that, you might think, but is it worth it? Because all too often, when you live this way, when you try to faithfully pursue Christ, you'll be surrounded by people who are asking you exactly that question. Why are you sacrificing the things that you're sacrificing? Is it really worth it? Shouldn't you be focused in this short life on the things that bring you joy? Shouldn't you be focused on the things that will at least give you some comfort and happiness? Why would you ever turn to suffering and pain and try to carry it faithfully? Is it really worth it? Now, already in Matthew 13, Jesus answered this question parabolically. Right? He gave us several parables that had to do with valuation. Right? The parable of the hidden treasure, where the man purchases the field because he knows that there's a valuable treasure in the ground. And the parable of the pearl of great price, where a man sells everything that he has so that he can have this one jewel because there's nothing else of greater value. Those were metaphors to describe the value of the kingdom. But now Jesus says the same thing, but without the metaphor. He just says it directly. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So the paradox is that self-focus the thing that we're encouraged to do doesn't actually save the self. It destroys the self. That paradoxically, the way to salvation is not to embrace the self, but to deny it. Only sacrifice leads to salvation. If you value this life more than you value Christ, you will lose this life and the next. But if you give this life for Christ, you will gain life in return. You will find what you're looking for by surrender, not by self-obsession. Jesus says, even if you could gain the whole world, the whole world is not the treasure. Your soul is the treasure. And there's nothing of more value than that. If that's the call of Christ on our lives, it does change the way that we suffer. It changes the way that we endure 
the hard things that we've been called to. Now, the cross will ultimately end our suffering, but what the cross is doing right now is not ending our suffering, it's changing the way we suffer. We move from avoidance to embrace, from despair to endurance, from self-obsession to participation in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that because the passion of Christ is the victory of divine love over the powers of evil, the cross is the only supportable basis for Christian obedience. He asked this question, how can we convince the world by our preaching of the passion when we shrink from the passion in our own lives? The cross, he says, is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. But it was just this participation in the cross which the disciples were granted when Jesus called them to Him. They're called blessed because of their visible participation in His cross. Think about those words. Remember those words. They're worth writing down. Only suffering love can vanquish evil. Only suffering love can vanquish evil. In Matthew 16, Peter didn't understand that any more than we do. But at Pentecost, he did. At Pentecost, he understood. When he came to write his epistles, he understood the value of suffering love. He showed that the Spirit had taught him you look in 1 Peter 3, Peter, of all people, writes, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Peter wrote that. The same guy who, when he heard what Jesus was saying, said, far be it from you, this will never happen would later write, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Why? Why is it better? Peter says, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In other words... Jesus' suffering love vanquished evil, and in the face of evil, He has called us to the same suffering love. As you suffer, as you find that, that the love that you have in your heart often is the cause of your suffering, the reason why you are in torment because of what other people are experiencing, the reason why you yourself are driven to difficult sacrifice, because you love, and that love makes you suffer, remember that's exactly what you've been called to. It was because of His love for us that He suffered. And it's because of your love that you suffer. But it's good that we follow after Him. It's good that He allows us to participate in His cross. Love suffers. Love suffers, but love doesn't despair. If the idea of suffering love sounds bleak to you, well, it isn't. 
Instead, it is profoundly hopeful. Jesus shows this as well, because what Jesus is calling his disciples to is not bleak hopelessness. It's actually profoundly hopeful, because it's anchored in the future, not in the present. It's that Jesus gives two things for his disciples to hold on to, two anchors, but anchors in the future. One is the resurrection. Right? He begins with that. From that time, Matthew writes, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's resurrection. The second anchor he gives is final judgment, restoration. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, Peter hears what Jesus is saying. He hears suffering and and killed and, and is so triggered by that that he doesn't keep listening. He misses the way it ends. He misses and on the third day be raised. We do the same thing. We do exactly the same thing. You here deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and it sounds like hardship. But remember, when Jesus presents the path, at the end of the path is resurrection. At the end of the path is life. The resurrection is the great anchor of our hope. We will die, yes, but we will be raised again. What about the sacrifices, you might ask yourself? What about all the losses that I've sustained in this life? Well, Jesus points us to the answer to that as well. That justice, that restoration, the justice to come is a kind of repayment where God keeps his promises, where he restores things, where he makes things as they ought to be. Now, when we think about judgment, we often think of it in the negative, right? God punishing us for what we didn't do. But in the context of sacrifice, the idea of justice is good. It's, it's God promising to restore what has been lost. And he gives foretastes of this restoration here and now. The disciples themselves witnessed some foretastes as Jesus promised them they would. They, they were able to see at Pentecost, right, the gift of the Spirit, that glimpse of what the restored creation would look like. Some of them lived long enough to see the destruction of the temple, the end of the old covenant order as a kind of judgment and the beginning of a new order, which Christ had prophesied. There's one moment, though, that we need to think about before we close, and it's Jesus's response to Peter when Peter says, far be it from me, or far be it from you, this will never happen, uh, Jesus says in the King James, get thee behind me, Satan. That seems like a pretty extreme response. This is Peter. This is the guy who just last week we saw confessed, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then in the next interaction they have, you're the devil, Jesus says to Peter. Like Jesus is maybe uh, giving too strong a response to this mindset of hindrance, as Jesus describes it. 
But imagine if we responded as strongly as Jesus does whenever Satan hindered us. Imagine if whenever we contemplated the difficulties that we've been called to, to endure faithfully, and, and, and thought, why? Why should I have to do this? Why should I have to suffer when other people don't? Why should this be my lot in life if we reacted in the same way? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Because I'm not focused on the things of man. I'm focused on the things of God. If when Satan said, this will never happen to you, we rejected that as strongly as Jesus does, if we had his same eagerness to move forward on the path that he'd been called to, wouldn't everything be different? If we were eager as Jesus was to deny ourselves and carry the cross, like he went where he was called with eagerness, with joy. Not that it was easy, not that it was fun, not that he liked suffering, but he did it because of where he was going and who he was going there for. He did it out of love. He suffered out of love. He suffered and he died so that we might be raised. And then he calls us to love the way that he loves. And the suffering will come whether you embrace the call or not. Rejecting Jesus' words doesn't mean, oh, now you won't suffer. No, the suffering will happen. It has happened. It is happening. And yet, that suffering has no right to you. That pain has no claim on you. The grave will eventually swallow you up, just like the whale swallowed Jonah. But the grave has no more right to you than it had to Jesus. One day, the grave will choke on us and will spit us out. When Christ calls to us, as he called to Lazarus, come forth. Jesus looked to Peter across the water and he said, come. And Peter came. Jesus looks to you from the opposite bank of Jordan. And he says, come. He says, follow me. Like Peter, if you look at the ground that you have to cover, you'll despair. So look ahead. Look to Christ instead. Look to the resurrection. Look to the restoration that he has promised. Look to Jesus on the other side and follow. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.